0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Lisa Leong with you. You know we love data and research at This Working Life, but sometimes you learn useful work-life lessons from a good yarn. Well, we have a beauty for you. Tony Fidel was instrumental in creating the iPod and the iPhone. He shares in his book, build an unorthodox guide to making things worth making, that his greatest successes have come from his greatest failures. And he has some doozies. What I love uh, is actually the lessons from your incredible fails. So let's go straight to one of them, Tony.
1: Let's do it. Uh, You know, failure, failure. You got to start somewhere. And the only way you learn is through failure. So I I got 10 years of... A a lot of learning because there was a lot of failure, which was great.
0: You might be surprised to learn that Tony and his mates actually invented a version of the smartphone before the iPod. But as he explains, it was a failure as they jumped the gun. So his first lesson, know your market and know what's realistic tech-wise. So general magic... Let's go with that. The lesson that you learned about solving a real problem rather than starting with the technology.
1: Well, General Magic was a company that was created in the early 90s from 1990. It went on for a while, but really I was there from 90 to 94. And in that time, we were trying to create the iPhone just 15 years too early. And this was a team of the best and brightest of Silicon Valley. This was the team that created the Macintosh with Steve Jobs. Steve didn't come to General Magic, but it was the team that created the Macintosh. Bill Atkinson, Andy Hertzfeld, Joanna Hoffman, Susan Kerr, amongst a lot of others. And so I wanted to go work with my heroes and I was all of 21 at the time. So I begged, pleaded, did whatever I could do to get in that door and was the lowest person on the totem pole and like, I'd take any job for any amount of money to work for my heroes. And we were making this product that we wanted to exist. We were making it because we knew it was the future. In 1991, 92, this was pre-internet, pre-Wi-Fi, pre-mobile data, pre-really anybody having uh, cell phones. We had a product that had downloadable games. It had email. It had all of these uh, emojis It had travel. You could book online travel. This was before the Internet. And so what happened was we were making all this really cool stuff and it was neat. But the technology wasn't ready yet in terms of the mobile networks and and, in terms of even the base display technology and processing. And then society wasn't ready. We weren't even ready. We, I didn't even have a mobile phone. Almost no one in the company had a mobile phone. We had pagers and other things.
0: Describe what that early model was for us, Tony.
1: What it looked like was it looked like a large, a thick book. So it looked like about the size of a paperback book novel something like that and it had a screen and a touch screen on it, it had a grayscale screen so it was just black well black and white with some grays we shifted and we sold less than a few thousand of them it was the biggest failure I learned through that failure I lost everything I I was socially unhealthy mentally unhealthy I was physically unhealthy we were working so so hard to try to impress ourselves and say look world this is the coolest thing and when it hit the you know the market Literally, no one knew what it was because no one experienced the problems we were trying to solve. Not even ourselves, and that's where I learned fundamentally: you have to understand why, and who, and what you're making, and what you're making, and why it should why it should exist.
0: And tell me about that gap there, because I know that you were kind of had. Uh you were trying to market to joe six
1: pack. Joe six pack, yeah.
0: As opposed to where the market was. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, we were trying to make some an, an everyday object for people. Most people didn't have email. They didn't even know what it was. They were their computers weren't even connected to anything, if, even if they had a computer. And so what I learned through that was we have to make sure there's the technology. Yes. And the technology wasn't there as I explained. But we didn't know really realized society had to understand that they had to have the problems, at least some part of the society to have those problems. So let's fast forward to the iPhone days in 2005, six, seven, when iPhone came out in 2007, people were carrying around with them a personal entertainment device, like an iPod. They were carrying a cell phone, a mobile phone with texting on it. And then they were carrying a laptop for productivity and information with web browsing. They were already buying, shopping online.
0: So Tony's saying that this problem we had in 2007 of too many devices wasn't yet a reality in the 1990s when he and his colleagues released their early version of a smartphone.
1: They were carrying all this stuff for their mobile life, a laptop, a mobile phone, and a personal entertainment device. When the iPhone came out, it blended all of those together in a handheld pocketable device that hooked up to Wi-Fi networks that existed now and, you know, starting mobile data networks. And all of a sudden, all of these pains that you had of carrying all this stuff, all this heavy stuff, was now in your hand. The technology is where it and society was right. We had the right vision in 19 in the early 1990s. It took having those other two pieces, all three pieces to come together.
0: So Tony, in that time you learned about obviously trying to find that problem. Uh, you then moved into making a pocket PC aimed at business people this time, but that one didn't take off. Then you pivoted to a pocket digital music player, which was an idea in 1998. Mm-hmm in 2001, that's when Apple called. So talk me through what happened, getting the idea essentially for the iPod and then Apple releasing the first iPod in 2001.
1: It was a very special time. Um, I had already been working. I was working at a company called Philips and making mobile computing devices. And during that time, I was a DJ, still am, DJ. So I was spinning all kinds of tunes. And we were the first devices, the Philips Nino and Velo were the very first devices to ever play audiobooks, audible audiobooks. And so I started playing with this. I'm going, wow, I had music. And I'm like, if these things can play audiobooks, well, why can't they play music? And this is exactly at the same time MP3s came online. So I was fascinated. I'm like, oh my God. We can download things from the internet. People are stealing music. You know, they were sharing it, but they were really stealing it. And now all of a sudden you could listen to MP3s on your computer through the internet. It wasn't great, but it was like, oh, wait a second here. I have these handhelds. Music is my love. And now you can do this thing digitally. We can start to combine them together. So I went off and created my own startup called Fuse to bring digital audio to the masses in a form that allowed the, the best of digital to happen, which was, you know, all your songs on a on a hard drive. But those were big hard drives at the time. And this was in 1999. And, you know, MP3 was still underground, but it was coming out. The music industry was starting to get really scared. And so I had lunch with a friend And this was in 2000 and I had worked with him at General Magic and Ali said, Oh, what are you working on now? I'm like, I'm trying to get these digital media products to come together. But the internet crash happened of 2000, like the market fell out. There was no money anywhere. I had barely any money left. And he's like, Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. The next day he had a lunch with a guy from Apple and he said, the, and the guy from Apple said, hey, who do you know who might know something about handhelds and these kinds of things? He goes, oh, I know this guy, this Tony guy. I just talked to him yesterday. It looks like his company is really, really doing poorly. You know, with the funding environment's not good. You know, maybe you should call him. And literally a few days later, I got a call. They just said, would you come in? And talked to us about consulting about a project. And I was like, I don't know. What do you want? A PDA, you know, a you know, handheld information device or whatever. And when I got after I signed, signed my life away with an NDA, gave blood samples, whatever, you know, they said, oh, well, we have this thing called iTunes. We, they had just bought it. it. Was in It was Sound Jam from Jeff Robin. He, they bought his company. They turned it into iTunes. It was all about digital music, but only on your on the Macintosh at the time. You know, they said, well, we have been trying all these MP3 players, but they're all not quite right. They're like, you know, slow to load, or they only hold one CD's worth of music, or they're really big. What could you do with that? So over a course of six weeks, I put together all the different pieces, the electronics, the displays, the interface, the packaging, everything, and create a styrofoam model, a business plan, outlined how much it would cost, and all those other things and then pitched to Steve Jobs. Through that meeting, he goes, this is what we want. Let's try to make this happen. And now you're the guy we want to hire to do this. And so literally I shut down my company, went to Apple to to build what would then become the iPod, brought some of the people from the team from that company, hired other people from outside. March 2001 was when I pitched Steve. I became an Apple employee in April 2001. And then in October, end of October 2001, introduced it in the first week of November 2001 and literally made it available. So it was a crazy, crazy time. Apple was not the company you know it today. It was a very, very different place, but we made the iPod happen.
0: Tony, how did that feel after so many years of just following your heart, uh, doing all that hard work and, and sort of having those crazy fails?
1: Well, you know, after you've had so many fails and to go to a company like apple at that time apple was 500 million dollars in debt it had 250 million not billion 250 million dollars in the bank it was barely break even quarter to quarter and it had 1% market share of the us pc market share now worldwide there was no apple retail apple wasn't available in in big stores it basically had died out around the world except japan To go and say you're going to go build something at Apple, at this company that Michael Dell even said we should pack it up, give all the money back to shareholders and shut down the company in 2001, to think that we were going to be a success with the iPod, it was unimaginable, right? It was just not the right time for that company to flourish, or at least so people thought. To join Apple at that time was risky. Steve was there, but it was not doing well.
0: Why did you say yes?
1: Well, I had learned over the last 10 years that through my experiences and, and working with great teams, we could build just about anything. And this I knew we could build, we could build the iPod. But what I learned at Phillips was could you sell and market it? And so I talked to Steve specifically about that. I go, Steve, I've already spent 10 years in the Valley working my butt off day in, day out, but I've learned that we need to be able to sell and market just as much as we can in- design and engineer it and manufacture it. What are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to commit at least two full quarters of every marketing dollar. We're going to turn away from the Mac and put it directly on the iPod and only iPod, if you can make it, if you can make this from reality, we'll do iPod and iTunes, obviously, because you have to have iTunes. And he did commit to me. And then that was the thing that turned my, my no to a yes. And then, and then, and then joined the company.
0: There's so much we can learn here, but one thing I'm really picking up on is this idea of how do we navigate our careers? And for you, it's about the people. Can you give us an understanding of why people are so important and what you're looking for there?
1: When I choose anything, when I choose to do something, I want to know what I want to learn. What am I curious about? What do I want to learn? Because that's what that's ignites the passion inside me, because I'm going to learn something and I want to go learn from the best. You know, when you choose your master's, your Ph.D. or thesis or what have you, you go and seek out the best professors, the best programs in the world and say, I want to go learn that. Well, why stop at school? You're going to learn in life, actually going to learn more in life than you're going to learn from school. You're going to learn real world wisdom. Go learn from people who are doing it at the highest levels. And so go where your curiosity is, where you where you want to learn something, where the people are at the top of their game, and go try to work with them so you can be shoulder to shoulder. At Phillips, I went to go to a big company, you know, and, and okay, I'm going to learn about how to make things because they know how to make things. They make a lot of things, but they didn't know how to sell and market it. When I went to Apple, I was like, okay, I know how to make things. I know how to design things, but I want to go work with somebody who knows sales and, marketing and Steve was a master at it with the Apple II and the Macintosh. This is someone I want to hitch my wagon to. He has changed computing multiple times, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, but he's learned. And I said, okay, this guy's going to commit. He's a genius. I watched him work in terms of at the meetings that we were in. I'm like, okay, I'll sign up. The first iPod wasn't, it was a success for Macintosh users but there weren't very many Macintosh users, so it wasn't a business success. <laughs> people loved it, but only if you were a Mac geek. It took the third version of the iPod, after lots of struggles getting it right and convincing Steve to bring it to the to the Windows world and not make people buy buy a Mac to use the iPod. Then and only then it became a success. So Steve had to learn that lesson. You know, I learned sales and marketing watching him, but he learned the lesson that people wouldn't just go buy computers to buy an iPod. Lots of lessons learned through those first three generations. And that's what set the stage for taking the company to where it is today, to then go to the iPhone, then the iPad and, you know, and so on and so forth. But it took three generations to get it right.
0: So you get through the three generations of iPod. What happened to take you from the iPod to start working on what became the iPhone?
1: Well, very simply there, it became an existential crisis for the company. Apple was doing poorly. Now, all of a sudden, iPod is 50% of the revenue, depending on the quarter, right? 50% of the revenue with a product that was you know, 20% the price of a computer. People were loving it. They were buying it. The the mobile phone industry saw it. The music industry saw it. And they were like, whoa, wait a second. And the mobile phone business goes, hmm, we're in pockets. We could then like, you know, play music too. You got headsets and things. Why can't we make an iPod-like thing in a phone? And so they started adopting MP3 playing capabilities. There wasn't an iPod by any stretch of the imagination, but you could hear those huge footsteps where hundreds of millions of these cell phones were now starting to be printed every year.
0: What were you learning about hearing those footsteps and what to do with that?
1: Specifically, it was people were only going to carry one thing in their pocket. Are they going to carry a phone where they're going to text and they're going to call people? Or are they going to actually carry an iPod? Well, they're only going to want to carry one thing. So the phone was much more uh, attractive for people because it was, you know, was more productive. They could make money with it. iPod was entertainment. So I'm going to take my productivity tool and add entertainment to it. And there it was. And there was also another thing called the Crackberry, you know, the Blackberry.
0: Although Tony, a lot of people, especially after, um, you know, maybe some failure and then a massive win with the iPod, I would imagine that a lot of people would have actually just doubled down on the iPod. I mean, you got lots of success. You'd say to Steve, hey, we're 50% of your book, you know, aren't we doing well? Why don't we build out from there? There's something else that was happening to, you know, sort of take you into that unknown can you identify what it was?
1: What was happening was we also saw the advent of mobile data networks. So at the time, it was only, you know, analog phones and then starting to become digital voice calls. But people were talking about the next generation of mobile networks doing mobile data. So lots of mobile data. Nobody knew what it was going to be used for. And we were like, wait a second. If all of a sudden, and what we called the celestial jukebox was created, which we now know as Spotify or iTunes or now Netflix, right, where all the content was somewhere in the sky and you could download any or play any song you wanted at any time. We we're like, oh. So it's not just that they, it was they were going to choose one device over the other. It was also the fact that you could choose unlimited music. People loved a thousand songs and 10,000 songs in your pocket. But what about a million songs, tens of millions of songs? So it was those two things that were like, oh, that was like the existential crisis going. These people know how to make phones. They know how to do this. Boom, 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 boom. They have lots of retail. They have lots of marketing dollars. Well, what are we going to do about it? And that's what was the basis for the decision to make ultimately what would become the iPhone.
0: After the third iPhone was released, Mm -hmm. you quit. Mm -hmm. Why and what what was happening there? And what did you learn, particularly for managers who might be listening?
1: So why would you quit a company that was on the rise with the iPhone? I had already done 18 generations of iPod. It was a treadmill, blah, 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 blah. And it wasn't 18 successive. Some years it was three generations in that same year. And then another year, the next year, three generations. The next year, three generations. So you're on this never-ending treadmill of iPod. Then iPhone comes and I'm on the third generation of iPhone. And I'm like, wait a second. I know what this is going to be like. It's going to be endless. And I wanted to learn new things and expand what it was I could do. I wanted to go and do new things at the company. And Steve was like, no, we need the iPhone. I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it in this way. It's a different way. It was a massive team, massive sets of politics, massive. Like it was just no fun anymore. And so I was just like, this is not me. I'm not learning and I'm just playing politics 80 to 90% of my time. I'm not designing, I'm not having the fun like I used to. And so I was like, this isn't for me. And that's really what it was about. And it was also my family, you know, not seeing them. My wife was also working for Steve Jobs at the time, so both of us weren't seeing our, our very, very youngest ones. So it was time to go for another direction and go find a new way.
0: I'm interested in your concept about individual contributors. Um, what's your one really good piece of advice for individual contributors?
1: Individual contributors sometimes believe, depending on the setting that they're in, the only way they can be successful is by becoming a manager and ultimately a leader a director whatever else. I found a lot of people who join management for those reasons fail because that's not what's in them. They don't feel like true leaders. They wanna do their craft at the highest level the way they do their craft. They're not managing people. They're not building people and building teams. They have to remember 90% of what they do is going to be management, not the thing they're really great at, which is that whatever that was, is they were being as an individual contributor. So you really have to understand what it is your goals are, and what's in your gut, in your heart, that you want to do for your career. You don't have to be a manager to be successful and go that you know that track, and then all of a sudden think, oh my, you know that's the only way to make money. Whatever, there are companies that have these ways to becoming leaders, informal leaders inside a very technical as well as non-technical endeavors, in careers. And so you should seek out those companies and work with those companies to allow you to be you and perform at the highest level. And you can be an informal leader of groups of people without managing them day to day and giving up the thing that is your superpower.
0: And you advise them to look up and around rather than just down. What do you mean by that?
1: Anybody who's an individual contributor, what they should be doing is they should not just be focused on their work or focused on the work for the people who are right next to them doing similar kinds of things. They should understand who their customers are, the, wh- who where their pr- work product is going to inside the company or outside of it, as well as who's supplying them work product inside the company or outside and understanding what they do, why they do it, what their nomenclature is, how they talk about the work and extend on beyond that, because those people have customers as well. Because when you can start to understand what other people's needs are and understand what motivates them in terms of their, not just their careers, but in their function, And you can make better decisions for what you do every day, and you can be empathetic to what they need so that you can do a better job, and they might be empathetic for what you need. And you can build those ties, you can learn, be curious and passionate, and grow to see the much bigger picture, and so you become a much more valuable person inside the company. Even if you're not a manager or a formal leader, you can be an informal thought leader because you can represent a much larger a set of ideas beyond what you do every day.
0: And do you have a final message for us, Tony, as we uh, embark on our the rest of our careers here?
1: Well, your careers, look, a lot of people just like to play it safe. They just say, I see the next wrong, I see the next wrong, I'm going to be able to get this raise, I'm going to be able to get this, I'm going to be able to get more vacation or whatever. Every single decision you make in life is risk-based, whether that is playing it safe it's a risk. Taking a risk and getting outside of your comfort zone, that's also risk. Where is there going to be more personal reward for you? What drives you personally? Is it your curiosity? Is your passion? Is it growing your career in whatever way you want? If so, you got to take those leaps because a lot of times people won't recognize for who you've grown into at the same company you're already at. Sometimes you have to leave that company to get people to recognize you for the talents and experience that you have have get, earned sometimes you have to change and get those butterflies in your stomach and when you have butterflies in your stomach that's the best place to be because you're challenging yourself and you're growing when you don't have those butterflies when it's always easy and you go in you're going to get bored and you're going to watch that clock every day and those Those minutes are going to become hours and those uh, those hours are going to become years. And before you know it, you're going to have wasted away. And yeah, you maybe made a 20% salary jump or you got a little bit better uh, title. But guess what? You're not growing and the people around you aren't growing. So challenge yourself. Make sure you have those butterflies all the time. Take those risks because even if you don't take those risks and you choose the safe path, you're taking a risk not to take a risk and you're not going to grow because of it.
0: Thank you so much, Tony.
1: Thank you, Lisa.
0: That was Tony Fidel. His book, Build, An Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making, tells the story of how he built his career from selling eggs door-to-door as a nine-year-old kid to helping build the iPod and the iPhone. We made this episode on the lands of the Gadigal and Mooradjuri people. This Working Life is produced by Sarah Allerley. Her nine-year-old got quite excited when she heard about this guest Like, really? The actual iPhone? I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, love your work. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC
1: podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.